Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of A Trophy Life, the official podcast of the Naismith Awards here in Atlanta. I'm your host, Bob Rathman, and coming up this week, a conversation I'm really excited about, and that is with Jay Billis of ESPN, our former Duke Blue Devil good friend is going to stop by, and we talk about the business of college basketball, the business of college athletics, the big money against the backdrop of conference realignment that we've seen each of the last three summers. But as Jay will explain, this has been going on for 30 years. Great insights from Jay Billis coming up in just a moment. But as always, we begin with our Jersey Mike's news and notes for the week. And the Basketball World Cup is underway as we start this podcast. The Friday games have been played, spread out across the Philippines, Japan, Indonesia for the first two rounds before the biggest games move back to Manila and they determine the gold medal on September the 10th. Spain is the defending champion, having won in China four years ago. The United States was only seventh in that tournament, the worst finish ever in a major international event. But the Americans, of course, have high hopes, and they enter as the tournament favorites. They start Saturday in Group C in Manila against New Zealand. And we'll be rooting for Walker Kessler, the former Auburn Tiger. The Noonan Georgia product was our 2022 Naismith Defensive Player of the Year. And Walker earned a spot on that Team USA roster, so all the best to Walker and Team USA as they move into competition. We want to send congratulations out to Bill Self and uh, and Brad Underwood at Illinois for arranging for a private scrimmage to become public. And the proceeds of that uh, game in Champaign will be for the Maui relief efforts. Now, you'll remember perhaps that Bill Self used to coach Illinois before he went to Kansas. Some of you may not be aware of that. Well, he's headed back to Champaign for the first time. Bill, of course, was our 2012 Warner Ladder Men's National Coach of the Year. And what a lineup for the Jimmy V Women's Basketball Classic, the first triple header in that Classics history will be played on December the 3rd on home courts. And how about this lineup? South Carolina goes to Duke. UConn at Texas, and Ohio State at Tennessee. Circle that date. My conversation with Jay Billets when we come back after this from Jersey Mike's. There's nothing like holding a freshly grilled Jersey Mike's cheesesteak. It's even better than holding a winning million-dollar lottery ticket. For starters, Uncle Sam takes half. Then you buy some useless stuff, like a tiny suit of armor for your cat. And before you know it, your sister's cousins and Uncle Frankie come knocking on your door for handouts. Bing, bang, boom, you're back to zero. So if you want to play a winning number, order a number 17 Mike's Famous Philly. Freshly grilled right in front of you. It's a Jersey Mike's thing. A sub above. We welcome in Jay Billis from ESPN and our, our good friend and my good friend from years gone by at Duke University and the ACC, and we're so thrilled to have him with us. Jay, you know, here at the Naismith Awards, we celebrate the best of college basketball, men, women, officials, contributors, and we care deeply about our sports. We're kindred spirits in that regard. We care about the game. But what's happening in college athletics today is alarming to me when we talk about conference realignment first and foremost and how it affects college basketball. Uh, th- being a Southern California native as you are, could you ever imagine a day that there wouldn't be a Pacific Athletic Conference? I mean, this is mind-boggling to me. How about you? It's 
surprising, Bob. I, I think, you know, it's interesting. that This is not a new phenomenon, as you know. It's been going on for the last 30-plus years. And, look, I mean, not to harken back to, to yesteryear when everybody wore short shorts uh, playing basketball, but, you know, I played in an ACC that had eight teams. And when I was growing up in Southern California, it was the Pac-8. And the Big Ten magically had only 10 teams instead of 16. Uh, and there was a big eight that had eight teams instead of the big 12 that has what, 16 or whatever it is. And so over the course of years, I think a lot of observers and, and some insiders have said that we're headed toward four super conferences. And now we pretty much have that, and people seem really surprised. Um, we've been moving in this direction for a long time. It's been about uh, chasing media rights dollars and markets. And one thing that I think a lot of people miss on uh, is is the, the the truism that all of these schools that play uh, NCAA sports are market competitors against one another, and all of these conferences are market competitors. They're they're not working together in any way. They're working against one another uh, for talent, for media rights money, you name it. And the only time they really get together and agree is to limit what athletes can be paid or what the way athletes are compensated. Other than that, they're strict market competitors. And this is capitalism at its finest. But the rhetoric, is, the only thing that hasn't changed in NCAA athletics is the rhetoric. They, they still act like we're in the 1950s. And they talk about education and student-athlete welfare, which I think are important to them. But the, the number one priority is, uh, is money and, uh, and positioning themselves for the future, which, which big businesses and multi-billion dollar industries do. So, you know, you know does it surprise me if, I, if you took me back to age 18, uh, thinking that there wouldn't be a, a, a Pacific Coast Conference uh, that was together regionally? Yeah, it would surprise me at that age. But, but at this age, seeing what's happened over the last 30 years, uh, and how this is just more business as usual, it, it really doesn't surprise me at all. It was almost inevitable. It might have been the Big 12 that went under, uh, but instead it was the Pac-12. And people forget that, hey, you know, the Pac-12 tried to take in Oklahoma and Texas a, a dozen years ago, 10 years ago, and it, it blew up over the Longhorn Network. And now they're in the SEC. And, uh, and you know, who would have thought Nebraska would be in the Big Ten? or Maryland would leave the ACC for the Big Ten. And that happened, those two things happened a long time ago. Uh, so it's sort of business as usual in the ever-evolving uh, landscape of this multi-billion dollar industry. Jay, one of the things that makes the NCAA tournament so fantastic, it's the little guy. It's the mid-major, the small teams, these teams that come from nowhere. And there's a certain romanticism attached and some charm. But as we amalgamate toward these major conferences, do you see the day coming that the NCAA tournament will be just for the big boys? I think it's doubtful uh, because basketball is a different, different sport. Uh, you know, it's funny, in football, nobody's worried about the little guy. You know, nobody says, well, wait a minute, Ball State doesn't have a chance to get into the college football playoff. It's, uh, it's very exclusive and exclusion, exclusionary. And, uh, and the, the smaller schools play football, but I don't think have really any illusion that they're going to break through. In basketball, 
smaller schools with lower budgets feel like they can put together a team uh, that has a, a you know five players that can do something extraordinary, and uh, they may not be able to do it year after year, but can do it in a given year. And basketball for those schools is used as a, a like sports generally, football largely uh, for the big shots is used not only as a revenue uh, producing entity, but it's also for institutional advancement. You know, these schools use their athletic success to one, to make a lot of money, but also uh, to advance the institution, to become more selective, that they they get more uh, donor dollars. Um, You know, it's happened over the years. So I don't think we're going to see a major shift in basketball. Uh, The NCAA still owns the tournament. They don't own football. And, and, you know, the conferences basically own football and they, they started their own, you know, the CFP and the, the BCS for a time and all that stuff that started around 1984 when uh, the last Supreme Court case that the NCAA lost before this Alston case. Uh, that's what led to this explosion in money. And uh, so I don't but I don't see the turn to your question. I don't see the tournament necessarily changing and. I think what we're seeing is that that you know people tend to think that money uh, makes programs and resources make programs, and to some extent that's true. But uh, what what athlete compensation will do is spread talent around more. Uh, we could see in football that you, know, you have the, a reduction in Division One, where, where there are fewer teams playing Division One, and there are fewer relative to basketball. You could see that going forward where there aren't going to be 360 Division I basketball teams, but I, I, I doubt you'll see anybody diving into Division II or Division Three because they think uh, their priorities are education first and, and sports as an avocation. More schools are trying to get into Division One, which really shows the fallacy of what the NCAA has been preaching over the last 100 years. Jay, let's talk a little bit about money as it pertains to television. A lot of this conference realignment and the monies that is paid out to these universities uh, comes directly from uh, cable television, broadcast television. Uh, We'll set the NCAA tournament to the the side for a moment, but in terms of certainly college football, it is a huge revenue generator for these schools. But you and I are deeply engrossed in this television business, and we see what's going on. What are these universities going to do? when cable TV goes away. The RSNs are already at a critical point. Disney is engaging talks with others from the outside to perhaps even buy ESPN, certainly a working arrangement. That is going to change the dynamic. Cable TV is an industry in decline. There's no question about that. And ultimately, it might go away. There'll be something to replace it, but I'm not sure that the money will be the same. What, do you, what are your thoughts on all of this, that's, this changing landscape of the way these colleges have, have gotten drunk off the money and, that, and the, uh, the bar might close at midnight? I'm not sure about that, Bob. I, I just don't know that the bar is going to close. Uh, there, there's certainly going to be an evolution in the media business, and, and there has been. But we're still going to have the delivery of the entertainment product and how it how it's packaged, how it's delivered. Uh, you know, I don't that's above my pay grade. I'm not sure how exactly that's going to happen. But, you know, I, I tend to think that, uh, you know, that the, the, the schools, the NCAA 
uh, the conferences, they're the holders of these media rights. They're the sellers. And they can sell it for whatever price they want and have whatever priorities they want. And the way I tend to tend to explain it to people that I engage with on this subject is look at Augusta National Golf Club that, that puts on the Masters Golf Tournament annually, one of the hottest properties in sports. Augusta National, and I'm sure you've been to the tournament as I have, and when you go to Augusta National, it's just a magical experience. Uh, and one of the things that stood out to me the first time I was there was, my God, I would pay double the amount of money for a sandwich and uh, and to buy merchandise and all this than they're charging. Everything is so so cheap relative to what I expected. And you watch the broadcast, and there are hardly any commercials. There's no signage on the property. And the truth is, Augusta National could make way more money if they chose to commercialize it to the highest level, and they choose not to do that. They want it to be a, a certain type of experience, and, and they have certain principles with regard to, and values with regard to, to the money there. And it's not that they don't make a lot of money, but they could make way more if they chose to. And then I compare it to the NCAA that espouses these high-minded principles about education and perspective and, and, uh, and all that. And yet, you know, you look at that and the commercialization of it, you know, the, the, the NCAA schools don't have to play games at 9 o'clock on a weeknight. They don't have to. They can play all their games on Saturday at noon if they want to. But the media companies pay more if, if they're in those primetime windows. And all these schools and conferences say, okay, we'll play them then. We, we want the more, we'll take the more money. We'll take more money. And, and I, I hear that from administrators all the time. I'll be doing a 9.30 game, as you do, on a weeknight. And then uh, there's provisions in the contract where if the game before us goes a little bit long, we could slide the tip 10 minutes. And they'll say, what, what, what are we doing here? You know, they, these guys have to go to school tomorrow, and the fans aren't going to get home till after midnight. You know, they're, they're driving in here at, at 8.30 at night for a basketball game. This is crazy. And you kind of look at them and say, hey, you guys can play whenever you want. You know, you, you can play at noon if you want. You sold us this game at 9.30. That was your choice. And we're in the business of, of putting uh, things on television that people will watch so that we can sell advertising. And, uh, uh, you know, and the truth is, Bob, like college sports is a hot property, the NFL, the NBA, all that stuff. But if chess became the hottest property in America and people wanted to watch uh, chess tournaments, ESPN and Fox and NBC and ABC, we'd be putting chess tournaments on. Um, we're going, we're, we're a business. We're going where the money is, in my estimation. And uh, so that's going to continue to happen, that, that these colleges are going to go where the money is. But if their principles are so and values are so important to them, then play all your games on Saturday and Sunday. You know, you'll remember this, Bob. You know, we're we're contemporaries in this, but people ask me all the time. They'll say, "Well, we got a Duke Carolina game on, uh, you know, in the middle of the week, and it starts at 9:30 at night." And I'll get the question, "Hey, when you played in the Duke Carolina game, I played at Duke. When you played the Duke Carolina game, what did you do all day long to to occupy your day for this late game?" And I'll go, "I never played in a game against North Carolina at nine o'clock. We always played at one o'clock on Saturday." Like, it was never dark out when, when Duke played North Carolina when I was a player. That's how things have changed. But it didn't change because TV came in and, and bullied everybody and, and said, this is the way it's going to be. We made an offer. TV makes an offer. And, and the rights holder 
you know, sort of the, the conferences, they accept that offer. And they say, hey, we, we want this. We want this amount of money. We'll do it. Uh, but they can play whenever they want. And that's, that's the thing I think a lot of people miss. They're the rights holder. We're the rights buyer. And I lay it all, because uh, I get the same questions, I lay it all at the feet of the college presidents. I said, do not blame television. These people take a check, and they decide uh, with that what time the games are going to be played. And, and it is not the fault of television or anybody else other than the college presidents who want to take the check. Yeah, and, and then it leads to what I call essentially a phony, a phony system. That uh, and I don't know what year this started. It was probably around the time I was in school, but uh, in the 1980s. But the schools used to pay for athletics. The university itself would pay for athletics, and then they decided, wait a minute, the athletic department needs to be separate, and and the athletic department needs to to pay for everything and sort of justify their existence by being self-sustaining. When those decisions were made, it's my belief that, that nobody anticipated the amount of money that was going to flow through athletic departments. Now we're talking about schools that, that are making individual schools that are generating an athletic department generating $120 million a year, $50 million, $70 million. It's ridiculous the amount of money that's made and generated. And the expenses of the athletic department magically rise to the exact level of revenues. There's no business in America that does that other than college athletics. You know, Texas makes 120 million. Their expenses are 120 million. That, that makes no sense. They they don't need to spend 120 million to run an athletic department, but they they have their their staffs are gigantic at these places. They're bigger than the Pentagon. You know, you look at a team picture, and there are more people wearing suits than wearing uniforms. Um, and the schools will say, well, the athletic department says our, our biggest cost, like is scholarships. And you're going, okay, well, where does that money go? What well, goes to the school? So they're paying all that money to the school. The school charges, charges them high costs for food service and for building maintenance, all that stuff. It's just a, it's just a money transfer from one university account to the, to the other. And then, uh, the athletic department pulls out its pockets, uh, as being empty and says, look, we don't have any money left. Well, where did it all go? Well, we paid it all to the school. So it's a gigantic money-making operation. And once the players start getting paid, which is going to happen absent congressional intervention, it's going to happen, then we'll see these universities streamlining their athletic departments, and they're not going to, have, they're not going to be paying uh, you know, all these people to do these jobs that I think are largely unnecessary. They're nice to have, but they're unnecessary. You would never see an NBA team operate like a college basketball team uh, no, as far no. as the expenses or a no. professional football team. Their, their, their facilities are gigantic for recruiting, but once they can pour that money into the acquisition of talent on the field and on the floor, they're not going to spend money the, the money this way. They're going to spend it in a more efficient manner. Jay, we'll end our conversation on this note. Do you still love it? Do you still love getting ready for the games and game day and being on campus? You still love it as much as ever? Yeah, that hasn't changed. And, you know, these are all, all, all discussions that are separate from the competition itself. So when I walk into an arena for Kansas versus Kentucky and Allen Fieldhouse or Duke versus Carolina, or you name it, I don't walk in and say, hey, look at this commercialized enterprise. I can't believe No, I don't do that. I mean, the competition is fantastic. And no fan is turned away over NIL to the transfer portal. 
people like to complain about it because it's different. But, uh, you know, over the last 30 years, I mean, the Big East expanded and contracted and went away for a while and then reformed. And, and, you know, the ACC, when I played in, it was eight teams. We had seven road trips and five of them were by bus. You know, now now it's 16 teams and they're flying to Syracuse and Miami and Notre Dame and all these different places. Uh, Duke is an NBA team right now as far as, as the conduct of the business. The only difference is that the players still go to school. And, uh, and they're enrolled as students, as full-time students, uh, but the only difference from the NBA. But, you know, the, the competition is still wonderful. There's still the, the same pageantry and the same passion. Uh, but behind the scenes, it's, uh, it's as big a business as the NFL or the NBA. And, and I don't think any reasonable person could deny that fact. It's always great to touch base with you. I can't get away from the Duke Brotherhood with Quinn and Mike Bray down here with my Hawks. I mean, it, the sun never sets on Duke basketball, Jay. Yeah, so it, it's amazing. I mean, I'm so proud of Quinn Snyder and, and Mike Bray. They're, they're two of my great friends. And, uh, uh, it, Bob, that just means we're getting old, that, that, <laughs> uh, that all, all of our friends are in high positions all over the place. We've just been hanging around a long time. That's a good thing. Well, Jay, nothing but the best. We we really do appreciate your time, and it's fascinating as always. And all the best, my friend, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you, friend. Great to be with you. That's it for this week. Get ready for your Labor Day weekend, and the new season is drawing ever closer. We can't wait. And thanks to Jay Billis for stopping by and spending so much time with us. We appreciate it. On to next week. We'll see you then. For all of us here at the Naismith Awards, Bob Rathman saying so long.